Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing this podcast. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am that host of yours, she who finds new mythological obsessions every few weeks. 
live. Now, this obsession of mine has been growing for some time, certainly longer than a few weeks, but the claim is still true. I have become utterly fascinated by the idea of Aeneas. Yes, Aeneas, but not the Aeneas of the Aeneid. He's obnoxious and annoying and basically just a blank slate of boredom. Sorry, not sorry to all the Romanists out there who want to scream at me, but it's true. But the Aeneas of Greek mythology? He is something else entirely. Which leads us to today's episode. But first, a reminder, next week, Tuesday, April 12th, my new book of Greek myth-themed cocktails is being released. It's called Nectar of the Gods, and it's available for pre-order now. And it may even be in some stores already by the time this episode comes out, but it's officially available as of the 12th. It was really such an incredibly fun book to work on. It's illustrated by the same queen of wonderfulness who illustrated my Greek mythology handbook, the amazing Sarah Richard. And the publisher also brought on the wonderful Thea Angst to come up with the cocktails themselves. I wrote the mythological and historical content, and together we created a truly enjoyable, silly, and nerdy-as-all-hell book of cocktails. I'm going to be discussing it some more on Friday's episode and even sharing some bits and pieces, so listen for that. It's seriously so fun. But today, today is about one of my favorite goddesses, the woman who got me into mythology as a child, Aphrodite. She is, of course, deeply fascinating all around. She had sexual agency in a way no other woman did. She did what she wanted and who she wanted, despite having an Olympian husband. And she had some incredibly impressive children. But there's one story and one child who has taken hold of my interest very recently. You may have heard me mention him on many conversation episodes, because I love to bring up this mystery. But today, I'm diving into his story myself. Obviously, there's another one of her children that has a hold on my heart, Harmonia, and I'm going to talk more about her soon. But today is about that other child, the mortal one, Aeneas. But before we look at this incredibly odd character, this mystery, one who seems to have so much hidden beneath the surface, (gasps) there's a lost epic somewhere in there, I'm certain of it. But anyway, first we have to look at how exactly the goddess of love ended up the mother of not only a mortal hero, but a Trojan one at that. This is episode 162. Getting down and dirty with mortals, Aphrodite and Kaises, and the mysteries of archaic Aeneas. The story of Aphrodite and Aeneas's father, Anchises, comes to us from one of the Homeric hymns to Aphrodite. 
The Homeric hymns, as I'll explain in more detail in future episodes, are songs of varying lengths that are dedicated to gods and heroes. Most of them are likely from the Archaic period, and since we don't have authorship on them, they are referred to as the Homeric hymns, basically just marking them as likely from the same general time period as the Iliad and the Odyssey, or at least when they were composed or being sung around the Greek world. The Homeric hymns are mostly short snippets of dedications to gods. They're not fragmented, but intentionally short, just like a quick hello and thank you. But there are a handful that are longer, most of which I've read in reading episodes on the podcast, and these tell very detailed stories about particular gods. One is the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. I'm going to read it to you completely on Friday, so you get all the dirty details then. But today, we have to look at the story that's being told within the Homeric hymn. It's the story of the time Aphrodite went down to earth to have a brief but passionate affair with the mortal, the Trojan, Anchises. I think I've told this story in the past, briefly, but we all know how much better I am at research now, let alone my new obsession with the Greek idea of Aeneas, so it's worth it, and here we are. In the world of the Homeric hymns, we learn that Aphrodite has taken hold of the whims of the gods. Not all the gods, no, there are goddesses who are very specifically left out of Aphrodite's sexual machinations. Women like Hestia, Athena, and Artemis. But the other gods? Oh, it seems she's been having fun with them. Particularly with the men. Aphrodite has been using her romantic wiles to have them fall in love, or whatever form it takes, with women of the mortal realm. And finally, Zeus has gotten tired of it. She's been making him look silly, it seems. Yeah, it's all her. Fathering all of these children by mortal women. Ugh, the horror. This is another interesting example of the power that they saw not only in the idea of love, but in lust, and the way that it could be seen as like entirely controlled by the gods. Or rather, it seems that the goddess of love is the best scapegoat when gods are out there getting themselves into trouble. It's not their own desires, their own libidos. No, no, it's all the work of Aphrodite. Blame the woman! And when Zeus gets tired of it, he decides to turn the tables on the goddess of love. He causes her to develop a burning, insatiable desire for a man named Anchises. He's really any old guy. I mean, he's of good breeding of Trojan blood. He's an ox herd, a working man off in the Trojan world to the east. Zeus doesn't have a good reason for picking Anchises, it seems. The intention is simply to embarrass Aphrodite for having fallen not only for a mortal, but a boring one down on Earth. And Anchises is that. Or at least he is before Aphrodite gets to him. Anchises is off tending to his cattle in the hills around Mount Ida in Troy, when suddenly he meets a woman. A beautiful woman but I'm getting ahead of myself. When Aphrodite finds herself desiring this mortal man due to the whims of Zeus, she doesn't just head right down to him then and there. No, instead, she goes off to Paphos on her sacred island of Cyprus where she gets ready. 
The charities, goddesses, also known as the graces, attend to her. These women are goddesses of, well, grace, but also beauty. They were known as the attendants of Aphrodite, but they also presided over things like banquets and general amusement, even relaxation. They might be better understood to be the goddesses of self-care. And the graces pamper Aphrodite with a day full of the best of self-care. They prep her for her meeting with Anchises, oiling her up and perfuming her, really just everything one might do to prep for a hot date. She's given jewelry. She's just coated in gold and beautiful clothes. She's really planning to give her best to this hard-working man up in the mountains. Once she's looking her absolute best, Aphrodite leaves Cyprus and rushes off to Troy, to Mount Ida, where she knows that she will find Anchises. But before she finds him, she lands on the mountainside and is met with a throng of wild animals, all seemingly drawn to this goddess of beauty and love. Wolves, lions, bears, and even leopards meet Aphrodite when she lands in these these mountains outside of Troy. They throng around her, meeting her with wagging tails. It sounds precious, honestly. And she loves it. She's just as excited as anyone would be to be met with wild animals that are suddenly tame and cute all around her. She loves it so much that she does what Aphrodite does best. She puts desire into the animals, and the next we know, they've coupled off and they go have sex in nearby caves, surely creating lots of more cute wolves, lions, bears, and leopards. And once she's sexed up the local wildlife, Aphrodite finally goes in search of this man she's found herself with an intense desire for, Anchises. Fortunately, or more likely, due to godly intervention, Anchises is conveniently off by himself in the shelters of the town, or rather, where the herdsmen that he works alongside usually live, but they're all gone off with their cattle, leaving Anchises all alone. There Aphrodite finds him, off by himself, playing the lyre. And, importantly, Anchises is hot as fuck. He is beautiful, sexy, that much the Homeric hymn makes very clear. And certainly it would be a requirement for Aphrodite, even with the machinations of Zeus involved. She's still Aphrodite. She's a bit shallow, but we love her. Aphrodite finds Anchises and appears to him as a mortal woman, or at least Aphrodite's version of a mortal woman, being... A woman that Anchises still immediately guesses to be a goddess because she's simply too beautiful to be, well, human. Anchises sees this beautiful woman, this absolutely stunning human, who's just wandered up to him where he works as a herder of cattle, and he's not fooled. He takes in her appearance, quote, 
Her beauty, her stature, her shining clothes, her robe blazed past the radiance of fire, spiral bracelets and earrings shining like flower buds with brilliant necklaces gracing her soft throat like the moon shining on her soft breast, beautifully inlaid in gold, a marvel. She looks fucking hot. He looks at her, their surroundings, he takes in all of this absolute wonder, and says immediately, quote, Hail, queen, whatever blessed one has reached this house, whether you are Artemis Leto or Golden Aphrodite. Having immediately assumed that he is, in fact, looking upon a goddess, Anchises goes on, listing possible goddesses that could be standing before him. Or are you a beautiful nymph, he asks, one of the graces? He knows for certain that she is divine, but who could possibly feel the desire to visit him in such radiance, he wonders. He offers to build her an altar, to make a sacrifice to her every season. He's really going all out trying to please her, to impress this goddess that stands before him. But... Well, Aphrodite obviously doesn't want to tell him that he's right, that she is indeed a goddess, so her response to all of this pure intuition and intelligence on his part is to say, no, I'm, I'm not a goddess. Why would you ever think that? Why would you compare me to the gods? The gods are incredibly, brilliantly good at lying on the spot. And not only that, but suggesting this person that she's lying to is ridiculous for even thinking the thing that is absolutely true. Gods love to gaslight. Still, this is mostly harmless. She lies, yes, but I get the sense that Enkaisi still kind of knows what's up. He just kind of goes along with it. Like, well, I know this is a goddess, but I'm not going to tell her she's wrong when she clearly wants to have sex with me. Anchises is only keen, just thrilled to have this super hot woman coming to him specifically to fuck. He's not married, not cheating on anyone, he's just living his life up in the mountains with his friends and his cows and having a super hot, almost definitely goddess approach him out of nowhere to fuck is absolutely something he's here for. I say that because it's kind of refreshing, obviously, to have a completely unproblematic and consensual affair between a god and a human. Like, who knew it was even possible? Of course, still, this is archaic poetry, which means there does have to be some intricate lying for seemingly no reason. Aphrodite tells Anchises that not only is she human, oh yes, human, but here's a whole detailed and thorough backstory for how she came to be so hot, how she's definitely still human, and here's how she got to be there with him, but she's definitely still human. She tells Anchises that she'd been carried off by Hermes, brought there to Mount Ida, and told very specifically that, quote, I would be called Anchises' wedded wife and bedmate. She tells him that Hermes told her that she would bear Anchises' glorious children. She goes on, making the lie even more detailed, saying that she will make a wonderful wife for him, that he should bring her to his family, show her off, that they'll all love her and agree that she's the perfect wife. 
Send a messenger over to my own family now, she tells him. They'll send riches on behalf of me in appreciation for the match. It's all totally allowed. Yeah, we can totally have sex before marriage. It's like totally been okayed by my family. <laughs> and Enkaisi's... Well, Enkaisi's is here for all of it. And well, as much as I said this was an unproblematic story, I do actually kind of feel for Enkaisi's here because she really does suggest that she's going to marry him and they're going to live happily ever after. And he's keen for it, though obviously she has no intention of living with him or continuing on with him after this one sexual encounter. Still, let's believe that he does, deep down, know what's up. Either way, when she tells him all of this, he yells out like literally a split second after she makes her point. Well, if all that's true and you are mortal and you are meant to be my wife and everyone approves and Hermes even brought you here, well, that means we can fuck. <laughs> okay, fine. His exact words are, quote, None of the gods or mortal men here will hold me back from mingling in love with you this moment. Which, I mean, truly means the same thing. He's DTF. And they do. They have lots of sex right then and there, making both of them very happy and satisfied. And Kaisis gets to have sex with the literal goddess of sex, not to mention the goddess of love and beauty and passion. And Aphrodite, well, she gets to fuck this mortal she desires, and he seems to be pretty good at it. Everyone's happy afterwards. And Anchises immediately falls asleep after, because, well... Aphrodite causes him to drift off, but even still, I imagine goddess of sex, sex, can be pretty tiring. Off to sleep Anchises goes, and Aphrodite sets to work revealing her true self. And boy, does she reveal her true self. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. 
I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While Ankaisi sleeps, Aphrodite transforms herself into her true and goddessy form. She's just as decked out, just as glorious as she had been, but now she doesn't even remotely resemble a mortal. If Ankaisi's thought she was a goddess before this, you can only imagine how she looked now, as she did her best to look as beautiful, as impressive, as goddess-like as possible. And once she's done this, she wakes him up. Quote, Son of Dardanus, wake up! Why sleep so soundly? Tell me whether I now seem as I was when you first laid eyes on me. She's making a real show of it. Totally over the top. Was this necessary? Is she just incapable of having people not understand her true brilliance? Possible. She wakes Anchises up, asking him to look upon her and say whether or not she's the same woman he'd just have sex with. And for Anchises, well, this is not a welcome surprise. Holy fuck, he might as well have said, but definitely didn't. You are a goddess. The moment he realizes she is a goddess, he hides himself from her, covers his eyes, and basically just cowers in a corner. He's heard too many stories of gods and mortals. Quote, When my eyes first saw you, goddess, right away I knew you were divine, but you did not tell the truth. Then he pleads with her, Please, don't make me continue to live among the mortals now that I've had sex with a goddess. I've seen what happens. Quote, A man's life ceases to flourish if he lies in bed with an immortal goddess. 
okay, fine. Was this unproblematic? No. Am I going to go back and change the earlier bit of this episode? Also, no. And Kaisi's is rightfully concerned. Things tend not to go well for mortals amongst the gods. But Aphrodite reassures him that this isn't the case here. He's special. You're beloved by the gods, she tells him, though we don't hear why exactly. The point is, he is special. He won't be harmed by the gods. His life won't be affected at all, at least for a while. The point, though, is he will go on to flourish because he has the gods' favor. But, she adds, quote, You will have a son who will rule among Trojans, and children will be descended from his children forever. And thus begins my obsession with this Aeneas. But we'll get to that. Aphrodite goes on to speak of other Trojans who have been loved in one way or another by the gods. She tells Anchises that while she would love to offer him immortality, she knows that old age will come for him, and so his life is better spent remaining among the Trojan people, and that they, this couple, will not have a future together. Then she speaks of her own future, how she will no longer be taken seriously by the gods because she's now lain with a mortal. She basically tells him she regrets being with him and that she'll be shamed forever for it, but also that like he's cool and nice and they're going to have a cool and nice child who she's going to love a whole lot. It's confusing, but then it's the Olympian gods. But... Still, this son of theirs? Oh, this son of theirs. She tells Anchises that the child will be raised by the nymphs of the mountains nearby, those nymphs who are neither mortal nor immortal, but deal in immortality and with the gods. They are friends and lovers of Hermes and the Silene, these rustic mountain gods. These nymphs will raise Aeneas, the future child of Aphrodite and Anchises. And when he's old enough, he will be brought back to his father. And then she tells him, quote, When your eyes first see this flourishing child, you will rejoice at the sight. He will be godlike. Then she tells him, You will bring him back to Troy, and when you are asked, Who is Aeneas's mother? You will tell them that it was a nymph of the mountains. You will not ever, ever tell anyone that the child's mother is the goddess Aphrodite. If you do, she tells Anchises, you'll be struck down by one of Zeus's own lightning bolts. And with this very lighthearted pronouncement, Aphrodite leaves Anchises. Once Aphrodite leaves Anchises with the knowledge that not only has he just had really great sex with the literal goddess of love and sex, but that they're going to have a child together who he's not going to see for a very long time. Once that's been established, Aphrodite just leaves Anchises to the rest of his life. And this is where our story gets quite a bit more fragmented. We have to just assume that Aphrodite does all of what she says, that she has the baby 
Aeneas and hands him off to these nymphs of Troy for them to then pass along to Anchises when he's older. We know that eventually Aeneas will indeed be a prince of Troy with a relationship with his father Anchises, so whatever comes in between can be assumed. So whatever the details are, Aeneas, he does grow up and he is brought to Troy. He becomes well known as a Trojan prince, a descendant of Dardanus on Anchises' side. Dardanus is Troy's earliest founder, or rather, more specifically, the father of its official founder, Tros. Aeneas's lineage is seriously important. He is not only the son of a literal goddess, and a goddess who doesn't make a habit of birthing mortal sons, but also a relation of the oldest name in Troy's history books. Due to his status as the son of a goddess, and a goddess specifically rather than a god, he is very directly linked to Achilles when the Trojan War rolls around, but before that, we have to wonder what's going on with Aeneas. There's little to say beyond some sourcing that suggests that Aeneas was maybe one of the Trojans to travel with Paris to Sparta, where he would so famously abduct Helen, or where she would equally famously choose to run off with him. If Aeneas was there, he doesn't play a very large role or really do anything memorable, but his name is linked with this very memorable moment. Still, it's during the war, specifically in the Iliad, where we get the most sourcing on Aeneas as a man. Aeneas's name comes up often enough when the Iliad mentions the Trojan side. He's one of their big names, and certainly their major child of a god. There are others, sons of Zeus on both sides, if I recall, but it's just Aeneas and Achilles in the war who are the sons of goddesses, whose mothers are so inexplicably helping them during their battles... Their mothers are fascinating. They love their sons very openly, influencing whoever they need to in order to keep the men safe, to help them in the war. They're very intentionally like mirrors of each other, one on each side, both with loud and influential mothers there to help. Fairly early on in the Iliad, there's a moment where Aeneas goes up against Diomedes. The pair fight and taunt and fight and taunt. The Iliad loves to have men taunt each other while they're fighting. When Diomedes wounds Aeneas badly, he's about to strike a fatal blow, and we know explicitly that such a blow would kill Aeneas for good. When Aphrodite steps in, Aphrodite steps in in a war. That alone, I think, is so interesting and notable. Aphrodite swoops in and carries off her son, saving him from Diomedes. But Diomedes is so riled up, so intent on taking out Aeneas, that he ends up throwing a spear and hitting Aphrodite. Aeneas, though, he's still saved, this time by Apollo, who swoops in when Aphrodite is wounded. Aeneas makes it, and Aphrodite flies up to Olympus, where she announces, quote, The son of Tydeus struck me, high-hearted Diomedes, because I carried my beloved son away from the war. Aeneas, who to me is far dearest of all men. For this is no longer a dread battle between Trojans and Achaeans, but now the Danaeans fight with the very immortal gods. 
Not only is Aeneas beloved by Aphrodite in this way, but she's willing to start a war between mortals and gods over him. He is clearly just this very big deal. And just how big a deal Aeneas is, is made very, very clear later in the Iliad, in Book 20, when once again Aeneas is faced with death at the hands of one of the Greeks. This time, it's very specifically his mirror character, Achilles, the other son of a goddess. Achilles is about to deal a fatal blow to Aeneas, but the gods are watching still, and they're willing to intervene again, and not just Aphrodite. Here, Poseidon is watching. He suggests they save Aeneas in an effort to keep Zeus happy because, quote, it is fated for Aeneas to escape death so that the race of Dardanos not perish without seed blotted out. He continues with, quote, Now it is strong Aeneas who will rule the Trojans and the sons of his sons who will be born hereafter. This bit is so, so fascinating. Aeneas is destined for greatness. He's destined to carry on his lineage with many generations of sons. He's destined to keep the Trojan blood alive, to rule over the Trojan people. He's destined for so, so many things and that are never mentioned again. That Aeneas is the son of Aphrodite and Anchises is super clear throughout many very ancient sources. Their names are all referenced in the Homeric Hymn, in Hesiod's Theogony, in the Iliad, and among truly so many other little bits and fragments. That Aphrodite has this son with a mortal is obvious and long-standing, even in a way so many other parentage situations are not. In the Iliad, Aeneas's importance is just as evident. He's not only this important son, but he's literally destined to keep the Trojan people alive, to save whoever he can and continue the line of Dardanos. He is saved by the gods multiple times and by multiple gods at that. He sounds like the type of character who should go on to be a household name. He's pretty unique in all these kind of destiny ways. He should be at the level of Achilles or Theseus, even maybe Perseus. His story is set up to be big and important in the grand scheme of mythology. And yet, nothing. Still, when it comes to Aeneas' escape from Troy, we do have some fragments. We do absolutely know that he got out alive, even after the Iliad cuts off before the end of the war. At some point, Aeneas escapes Troy, either just before or during the Greek attack on the city via the famed Trojan horse. According to some fragmented sources, Aeneas' escape might come immediately after the portent appears to Laocoon. He's the man I've told you about before, the man of a very famous statue in the Vatican Museum. It's gorgeous. He's a priest of Troy who sees the Trojan horse left behind by the Greeks and dares suggest it is indeed a bad thing that they should not let into the city. But before he can fully express this point about the horse, snakes come out of the ground beneath his feet and kill him and his two sons. 
This, it seems, might have been the final straw for Aeneas. He might have seen the writing on the walls and left Troy when he saw this moment for Laocoon. According to some fragments, he flees to Mount Ida with a handful of Trojans and, famously, with his father Anchises, who he has to carry on his back. Anchises, meanwhile, has further fragmentary anecdotes that might even connect to the end of that Homeric hymn when Aphrodite so directly threatens that if he ever reveals who Aeneas' mother is, he'll be struck by one of Zeus's lightning bolts. Now, if you're wondering how this makes sense, because seemingly everyone understands that Aeneas is the son of Aphrodite, you wouldn't be wrong. Don't worry about the logic. The note is simply that Anchises is lightning struck, according to some fragments. But it also isn't until much later sources that we learn that maybe this lightning strike specifically was in response to that threat. (sighs) There's a lot of fragments. Regardless, we know that Anchises and presumably Aeneas appeared in a lost tragedy by Sophocles called Laocoon. That told the story of this moment, that the very dramatic lead up to the end of the Trojan War. And their escape, Aeneas carrying Anchises on his back, is shown in lots of art, too. Pottery and sculptures, references, all over the place. He wasn't only famous in text, but his destiny to escape from Troy and carry on this line of Trojans is beyond the Iliad. He's shown starting off this destiny in many places. And yet, what we don't have are fragments or mentions, notations, anything that suggests there were further stories of Aeneas after he escapes Troy. Instead, he seems to fall off the map, off the face of the earth. He is this major character, this foil to Achilles, this mirror to the main character of the whole of the Trojan War, a son of an Olympian goddess, a son so important that the goddess risks her life for him, that he's saved by multiple Olympians, that his fate is foretold by a Poseidon. Aeneas is so, so important. He is so interesting and complex, and there is so much more that should exist about him. There, There's so many questions that are opened, poised, so many plot points that are begun and never finished. What on earth happened to Aeneas? <sighs> If you're listening to this episode and perpetually wondering what the on earth I'm going on about thinking, Liv, you've already told the story of what makes Aeneas special in the long run, what he goes on to do. He lays the foundations for Rome. Just remember, when the Iliad and these other surrounding texts were written, including the Homeric hymn and Hesiod's Theogony, both of which mention Aeneas and this sort of epicness, the founding of Rome, particularly with the myth of Aeneas, wasn't even a glimmer in anyone's eyes. The Roman story of Aeneas founding the city of Rome, or its precursors, comes about 700 years later. When the Greek Aeneas existed, when the Greeks told the story of this vital son of Aphrodite, a Trojan line, the son of Dardanos, destined to carry on the blood of the Trojan people for generations and generations to come, they were not talking about Rome. Or if they were, there's an even bigger mystery at work. But no, it wasn't about Rome. It was about something else. Something else entirely. Which is precisely why I've become completely obsessed with the idea of Greek 
Aeneas. Why doesn't he appear in anything after the Iliad? Why are there no stories about what he would go on to do, where he would go? No stories of Aphrodite and her son at any other time. No fragments or mention, no notion of what made him so incredibly unique in the Iliad. No further connections between him and Achilles, these famed sons of goddesses. The rest of the Trojan War survivors have stories. We even know about those who died and lived on in the underworld. But Aeneas? The man explicitly, specifically destined for long-lasting greatness? Nothing. There's nothing. <laughs> Which, fine, lucky for Virgil, who basically just had this incredible storyline just waiting for him to take it and turn it into the founding of the origins of Rome. What about in Greek mythology and Greek epic and Greek tragedy? There are so many unanswered questions about the Greek Aeneas. I know, I'm rambling. And you all know how much I love to just ignore Virgil anyway. Virgil's Aeneas is nothing compared to Homer's Aeneas. But seriously, what was the point of Homer's Aeneas? Someone find me a time machine. I'm never getting over this, which is why I've given you a very unfinished, open-ended episode. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I don't know how it is that I became so obsessed with understanding this archaic version of Aeneas, but man, am I ever obsessed. It's just so fascinating. He's Aphrodite's only real human mortal child. She treats him so very specifically in the Iliad, such special treatment. There's such a long and detailed story for how she became pregnant with him. The Iliad has such a specific line about him going on to keep the Trojan bloodline alive to found a city. And yet all of that came so, so, so many hundreds of years before what the Romans decided to retcon him into their national history. What was there about Aeneas in the archaic Greek world that we're missing? What was intended with his story? Why was he so very special and unfinished? I'm just truly obsessed with all these questions. Aeneas. I never thought I'd care about you at all. <laughs> but, well, enough about him. Reminder that you can pre-order my book of fun and educational co and super dorky cocktails, Nectar of the Gods, wherever you get books worldwide. And stay tuned for Friday's episode, which is a reading of the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, where the story of her affair with Anchises is told in detail. And because I will share lots of nerdy cocktail info with you in that episode, including reading from the book, just to give you a taste of how silly and boozy it is. And now I will leave you with another wonderful listener who left me a five-star review. This is from Telomera in the US and is headlined, Why Did It Take Me So Long to Find This? I love, love, love this podcast. Listening to the host passionately talk about Greek myths and history just makes me so happy. I wish she never stops making these. Currently, I'm binging past episodes to get through my boring workday, and I'm glad this will keep me busy for a while. Thank you. That's very kind. I do love reading these. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. She did not, however, bring me a goddess wife. She runs the YouTube, creates promotional images and videos and edits and researches. Ugh. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all. You're the absolute best. I am Liv and I love this shit quite a bit, if you can't tell.
When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.